Welcome to Sailing in the Mediterranean and Beyond podcast. I'm your host. My name is Franz. Well, today I'm going to tell you how I finally solved my engine overheating problem, and then we're going to get on with an interview with Neil Fletcher, which is going to go through the route and his adventures in sailing in Sweden, Finland, and Estonia for the summer sailing season of 2019. But before we get to that, let me thank my sponsor, Sailrite. Since 1969, Sailrite has been equipping you with everything you need to sew for your boat, from bimini's and boat covers to upholstery work and even sewing your own sails. Sailrite is your one-stop shop for fabric, sail and canvas kits, tools, hardware and sewing supplies. Sailrite is also the maker of the patented Ultrafeed sewing machine, a portable heavy-duty machine that can handle all the sewing jobs for your boat and more. A passionate crew of DIYers, Sailrite produces high-quality, free how-to videos to empower their customers to turn their sewing dreams into a reality. Well, I told you uh, at the beginning of this uh, summer sailing season that I knew I had an engine overheating problem. And I thought I would solve that problem by changing the mixing elbow, the exhaust mixing elbow on the boat. And I talked a little bit about how I did that in, uh, I think that was the last podcast. Well, as you know, that did not solve the problem. So I knew it had to be one of several things. I assumed it was going to be the mixing elbow because it had been about five years since I'd previously changed the mixing elbow, and that's one of those standard items that you do need to change every so often. So it had to be that, or it had to be the um, saltwater pump. (laughs) This always happens. Ignore, ignore. All right. It uh, had to be the saltwater pump. I'd changed the impeller. I knew the saltwater pump was working, so I knew it wasn't the saltwater pump. And by process of elimination, it was not the uh, mixing elbow. Well, then it had to come down to two other possibilities. The other two possibilities were the thermostat, which is an easy fix. And finally, the one I was putting off till last, which was the... um, the heat exchanger, the engine heat exchanger. So I went through the logical process. Of course, we eliminated the pump, and now we've eliminated the mixing elbow. Later on in the summer, uh, towards the end of the summer, we just nursed it through this summer because I just didn't really have the time to dig into it until later on in the summer. But later on in the summer, I went ahead and uh, pulled out the thermostat, which has never been changed in the boat. And I had actually two extra thermostats on board, so spares were not a, not a problem. And I tested it. Basically, you test a thermostat by taking the new one and the old one and throwing them in a pot of pan and bringing it up to boil. And if they both open equally, uh, then, then, then they're both okay. <laughs> so I tested, I tested the old thermostat and the new thermostat, and they were both okay. But still, I threw out the old thermostat and put in the new one. Still overheating. So I put off the worst until last. So I decided to go through and uh, change the heat exchanger. And I put up on the website quite a few photographs of the process. Now, 
I decided to attack this process by preparing for it in advance. And I called up my Yanmar service shop down in California, in Costa Mesa, California. And I talked to her about how they clean it out. And she was saying, oh, we use all these chemicals to throw in there. And I thought, I, I really don't want to be dealing with chemicals uh, to, a, to a great extent, at least not that I have to run through the engine uh, saltwater intake because it would just be entail too much plumbing and too much difficulty to do that. So I decided, well, I asked her, I said, listen, I've looked at the heat exchanger, and to me that looks like about the size of a twenty-two bullet. And has anybody used a twenty-two bullet or twenty-two long rifle uh, cleaning kit to run in and out of the tubes? And she said, I've never heard of that before. But on a, on a whim, I went ahead and bought a, a, a small cleaning kit for a twenty-two pistol with about, mm, I think, with the the uh, length of the rod for the cleaning rod was about a, about a foot, maybe a little longer. And then I, along with that came a copper uh, brush, wire brush, copper wire brush that is used to clean out rifles for twenty two shells. And as it happened, it is exactly the size of the Yanmar heat exchanger tubes. And so I, pay, I put on the website some photographs of the process uh, that I went through to actually clean this out. So I, I only pulled out the front side of the heat exchanger. I did not take the full heat exchanger out, so I just attacked this problem from the front of the engine. So when I'm looking at the engine, I'm actually facing aft, but this is the front of the engine. And I have photographs of what it looks like, what it looked like before I started the process, and then what it looked like when I opened up the... Actually, this, this next picture that I have here is uh, from the previous time I changed the, uh, cleaned out the heat exchanger, not actually this time. Uh, and then the next photograph is me starting to take apart the heat exchanger, the front cover for the heat exchanger. And you'll see in that photograph the uh, gun cleaning rod and the wire brush on the end of it sitting on the engine. And the next photograph is actually with the cover off the heat exchanger. And you can see that I actually had one, two, three, four, five, six, seven fully plugged tubes of that heat exchanger, which had been built up with lime deposits. And that is why my engine was overheating. And if I'd known it was going to be this easy of a fix, I would have, I would have tackled this last year. But the key is if you attack a project like this is you need to make sure you have the gaskets. I actually had two sets of gaskets uh, for for replacing the parts on this, the gaskets, the O-ring, and then the gaskets. There's actually a couple gaskets. There's the big O-ring that you'll see in this photograph that you pop out and put a new one in. And then there's a there's a sort of a piece sign shaped O-ring, or not, not O-ring, piece size, piece sign shaped gasket that goes uh, over the top of it, and you'll see a, a photograph of that as well. But that is what it looked like when I started to attack it. And you can see that the uh, the cleaning rod, the 22-gauge cleaning rod, fit perfectly into the, uh, the heat exchanger tubes. And when I started pushing these in and out, you could feel the blockage of the tubes. And so what I would do is I bought uh, basically some decalcification agent, which you could probably just use muriatic acid, and uh, coated the tip of the 
cleaning tube with this decalcification agent, which is a mild acid, and I would run it in and out of there and run it in and out of there and then uh, dip the uh, wire brush, the cleaning brush, in fresh water and then run it in and run it out, run it in and run it out. And it took me about, oh, maybe a half an hour to get all the tubes nice and clean, and then I replaced the gaskets and... Uh, Lo and behold, that solved the engine overheating problem. So I just thought I'd share that with you before we get on to the interview today with Neil Fletcher. Neil's going to tell us about his summer sale for the summer of 2019. Before we get on to the interview, I want to thank my Patreons. I had a new, I, I have a new Patreon, Andrew Groves. Andrew, thanks so much for your pledge uh, to support me as a, as a podcaster. I also want to reach out to all my other patrons, Adrian Ramsey. Thank you very much, bud. Brad Harley, Rich Jardine, Rob Stassen, Bonnie Walton. Thanks so much. Bonnie Gibbs, Craig Anderson, Gary Takas, who has his own podcast on uh, on being a dentist. It's a, <laughs> I've tried to listen to that podcast, Gary, and... Uh, it's uh, beyond me. I don't have the lingo down, and I don't understand most of what you talk about. But I understand you are the uh, oldest and the longest-running dental podcast, and apparently there's a full convention for dental podcasts out there. All right, Greg Wilson, thanks. Jack, Jack, you got me to become a patron, and you've been supporting me ever since then. So thanks, Jack. Jack Andrews. Jake Miller, thanks, Jake. I appreciate your sponsorship. Joe, I'm not going to list your last name because I don't think you want it, but Joe, you've been a sponsor for quite a while as well. Kevin Yeager, thanks, Kevin. David Bruce, Jason Watson, Jonathan Wexler, thanks, Jonathan, appreciate it. Matt Young, Nicole Marie Glennon, Nicole, thanks so much. Stephen Adams, TJ Cowell, Alvonar Fabre, Bjorn Westra. Thanks, Bjorn. Thanks. I really appreciate it. Chris, again, no last name here. Howard in Israel. Howard Clayman. Thanks, Howard. I appreciate your sponsorship. Uh, Johan, Mustafa, Robin, and Project Mania, who I met in Montenegro a few years ago. And finally, Shane Berry. Thanks, you guys. I really appreciate you supporting the podcast. So I'm looking for more Patreons. I'd appreciate it if I'd get a few more Patreons. Right now, just for full disclosure, I am getting from all these Patreons combined almost 100 bucks a month. And I really appreciate that at least, uh, that at least pays for the, uh, well, the website hosting. And that helps a lot. So thanks so much for your support. All right, now let's get on to the interview with Neil Fletcher. I'm starting the recorder and making sure it's running before I uh, talk to you for a half an hour and then realize we haven't talked to each other. All right, it's been a while, Neil. It's been well, well, we never even caught up on last summer's sale, and here we are a full summer later, and I finally got you back on the podcast to talk about your adventures this last summer, and I gather they were some pretty... Uh, so a lot of miles were uh, sailed under the keel this year. Yes, indeed. You know, I try to be a little more adventurous every year than I was the year before. 
Um, so this year I got in 633 nautical miles over the course of five weeks, which for me was quite a lot. Um, we started off in Oregrund, which is on the west, the east coast of Sweden, about 100, north, 100 miles north of Stockholm. And through a series of crew over a period of five weeks, I sailed to Helsinki in Finland and down to Tallinn and Estonia and back in a big loop. So it was uh, a lot of new places, a couple of old places, and it was a great adventure from start to finish. So is that where you wintered your boat was up there then? Yeah, it's it, it's been in it's been in Oregon now. This is the second year, um, and it's kind of a good stopping off point. It's not as expensive as the marinas closer into Stockholm, so the annual cost for keeping it there is sort of about thirteen hundred US dollars for the year, and that includes the hauling out and the splashing back in. So it's a great price, and they seem very well equipped up there to do whatever work you might need. And it's a really beautiful spot. And if you do decide you're heading east over to Finland, it's a sort of perfect jumping-off spot. It's That way you don't have to deal with all the islands in the Stockholm archipelago. You don't have to clear them before you can get out into the open water and cross the Baltic. So it's, it worked out well. All right. I just found it on Google Earth. I'm putting a place marker here. And uh, it looks like you've got a lot of inland sailing right around there. Yeah, that's absolutely right. There's um, the biggest town to the south, which is about 15 nautical miles away, is called Nortalia, which is N-O-R-T-A-L-L-J-E. And I'd come up from Nortalia before outside in the, uh, in the Baltic. And it was only after I'd done that to deliver the boat to Oregon that I discovered that there was an inside passage that people talked about and really liked. So when I was bringing the boat back this year, I took that inside passage and it was really charming. I mean, you, you could put up your sails in some of it, but most of it was like being on a canal um, through rural Sweden. It was absolutely gorgeous. A couple of lifting bridges and um, it sort of added an extra ripple to the to the experience, which was it was great. It was a great, and I was single-handing too, so taking those inside waterways on the way back was really a nice coda to the summer's adventure. Hmm. Yeah, it looks like that area just right around there would be great cruising area in and of itself. I mean, it looks like hundreds of little islands and passages. It looks like uh, yes, and in fact, the uh, the Swedish. Sea Scouts have a big headquarters up there, and it's not unusual for families to pack off their Swedish kids to sailing camps for two or three week, weeks at a time. And as you said, it's very sheltered, lots of islands, not, lots to explore, but the conditions are always pretty benign. I mean, the worst thing that can happen to you is that it starts raining and there's no, or there's no wind because there isn't any big swells. It's really it's nicely protected, so it, it's a nice option. What are the tides like up there? Oh, they're virtually non-existent. I mm. mean, I think uh, less than six inches. <laughs> so uh, it's uh, it's it's very easy from that regard. You know, especially if you are um, going um, bows two for the night, um, which, as you know, is a way that we we moor up there. You know, you just tie off to a a, a rock, or more specifically, a tree on a rock, and then you drop a, a keg, your stern anchor out the back. So you don't have to worry about waking up in the morning and suddenly finding you're hanging off a tree. I mean, it's the, the, the tides are just non-existent, so that, that just makes it a little easier. Yeah, it's, it's surprising. I, I have a hard time figuring out where tides are going to be and where they're not. I always sort of assume the farther north you go, the higher the tides, because that's the way it is up around Alaska. As you go farther and farther north, 
along the west coast of the United States, our tides get bigger and bigger. But that's quite a ways north, and that's non-existent tides, and that's sort of surprising. Yeah, well, there is a scientific reason for it, but it's probably beyond my pay grade. But if you go on a similar latitude across the North Sea to Scotland, they have huge tidal um, uh, differences there between low tide and high tide. I think it's got something to do with the flow of water in because it's the, the Baltic is almost a um, it's almost uh, an inland sea. You know, the flowing water right down at the south end there where you meet the north coast of Germany and Denmark, there isn't that much water coming in, so that may be the reason. And I'm sure there's some listeners out there who will be able to give us a good, uh, a good reason why. Um, but I do, I am aware of the fact that once I finally leave those waters, I'm going to have to, start, especially when I'm sailing over to the UK, which I will be in a couple of years, I'm going to have to um, be a, it's a lot more cognizant of dealing with tides than I am now. So did you plan out your tell me tell us about your planning process for your summer sail? Well, last year I dipped my toes into Finland. You know, this is the by way of background, this is the third summer in the last four that I've been sailing up there. Um I bought the boat in the fall of 2015 and my first summer there was in the summer of 2016 and I stuck around the Stockholm archipelago which in, in itself is uh, gives you a very rich variety of good sailing and good destinations. But last year I decided to expand a little bit, expand my horizon. So I, I crossed the Baltic and I went to three or four of the islands in the Orland archipelago. And that's Orland spelled A-A-L-A-N-D. And it was such a an interesting experience. It was a little, little wilder um, absolutely beautiful but again almost unlimited scope for exploration because they have i think in excess of twelve thousand islands over there and all the Finns that i would meet would tell me oh if you like the stockholm archipelago you will love the finnish archipelago so having dipped my toe in last year i decided that i was really going to go for it this year so i just made a decision that i was going to sail from oregon to helsinki uh, and back and stop off in as many interesting places as i could so that was the that was the broad parameters of where I chose to do. I gave myself a little over five weeks to do it. And then once I'd done that, then I just studied the, 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 the pilot books, the, the guidebooks, Navionics, and a couple of uh, online sources to find out the best places to go and give myself a reasonable um, amount of travel every day. I don't, ideally, I don't like to go more than 30 nautical miles on a passage, although I will if I have to, but simply by virtue of the fact that I don't want to be in a mad rush as you know, long passages can be exhausting. And also, in the conditions that are up over there, as we talked about before, there's so many hidden um, rocks and skerries and tiny islands that you don't want to be coming in 8 or 9 or 10 o'clock at night, even though it's daylight, but, you know, be tired and perhaps not be mentally alert. So just to keep it sort of manageable and so you could actually enjoy your time there as well i just sort of i just did a series of stop-offs typically between 20 and 30 nautical miles to get me all the way to helsinki and then the same thing coming back all right and if i'm looking at this correctly your passage from uh, sweden on over to the Åland islands is about 20 miles is that about right um well yes and no it's um it is once you get to the, the open water but I started off going from Oregon on the inland uh, waterway down to Grislehan, which is um, 19 nautical miles. And that was just the first sort of shakedown to make sure that everything was working fine. 
And then I had to go back north because you can't get out at Grislehan. So you have to choose where you go because there isn't always access to the Baltic. So I had to go up, I think, 10 nautical miles, and then it's about 22 nautical miles across. And then to go up to the town of Mariham, once you reach the outlying islands in Finland, is still another 10 miles after that. So all in all, it's about 45, 45 47 nautical miles, something like that. But um, it was a pretty uneventful crossing. It was grey and with intermittent rain. And we left, I think, about 8 a.m. And we just motored over and got over there in the early evening. So it was, as, um, as, as crossings go of seas, it was pretty, pretty uneventful. Okay. I, I was uh, Now, did you break it up into specific legs like I do, where I invite people on the boat for a specific period of time? Yes, yes, that's exactly what I did. Now, the first leg, I chose the sailor who I knew had the most experience and with whom I'd had the most experience. Um, there's a, a fellow who I sail with down in the Marina del Rey here in California by the name of Kevin, and I've sailed with him probably 40 or 50 times. Um, a good sailor, completely unflappable, very calm and easy to get on with. So I chose him for the first leg because... That would be the time when I was relearning my boat, so to speak. And it was also the longest leg because the 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 leg, the first leg from Oregon all the way over to Helsinki um, was took about 10 days and was uh, close to 200 nautical miles. So actually was close to 250 nautical miles. So it, that was the first leg. And then I met a couple of people in Helsinki and we went, we sort of, we didn't quite re retrace our steps. We went sort of the southern, the northern end of the of, of the same loop, if you like, to Turku, which was 175 nautical miles. And then they, they left. And then from Turku, I picked up another couple of folks for the journey back, which was about another 200 nautical miles. But And they were the probably the least experienced sailors, but I was covering ground that I'd been to before. And by then, I was already four weeks into the trip, so I was feeling very confident in my own abilities. Um you know, I, I'm sure you can relate, Franz, when you go back on your boat, even after all these years of being on it, if you've been away from the boat for, you know, 10 months, there's still a little period of time where you have to relearn a couple of things and remember a couple of things. And especially since I, I sail on five or six other boats regularly during the course of the year, I have to remember what my boat is about. So that's kind of why I chose the most experienced skipper to start, the sailor to start with. Yeah, that's a good idea. That's a good idea. And you're right. Even though I've done things over and over and over again, it's uh, you, now you understand why airline pilots have a specific uh, routine that they checklist, read off and yeah. checklist that they go through. And I keep thinking I need to do that for my boat, but I'm never that organized to actually do something <laughs> like that. But you're right. You do you you do tend to forget things. And and I'm getting better because, you know, on my my sales, when I first got my brand new sales are not they weren't labeled head, foot, and tack. And it was always a headache to find the right, uh, the right, <laughs> the right corner to set up. And like everybody else, uh, I've, I've, I've put up sales uh, upside down uh, more than once in my life, and I hate to admit mm -hmm. that. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so let's start out and trace your first route. Now, do you have, uh, did you keep track of this on Google Earth and set up KMZ files or anything like that? Um. You know, I, I did keep track of it, but I kept track of it on um, on Navionics, okay. and I've got um, and I have those files. And um, what what listeners can do if they're interested in doing a deeper dive is they can check out my website, which is sailingarctourist.com. And for each of the legs that I did, 
I have um, the latitude and longitude. I have a couple of snaps that I took while I was there, plus some images from Google Earth and the Navionics track. So that should show people, sort of get, allow them to orient themselves better and get an idea of where exactly I was in the world. All right. So we'll, we can go to salingarctourist.com and, uh, and they can look at your different legs and that'll be great. I like I like to do that because sometimes people listen to these podcasts. Some people are really into them, especially those that are going to be sailing in the, the specific areas, and they like to look uh, in detail at what we're talking about. And that's why I open up and I talk to you with Google Earth open, so I can sort of follow around as as you're going along here. Yeah. Okay. So now from Oregrund, or Oregrund. Do you actually go north to get out of that peninsula, or can you go south through that opening area? Um, well, from Oregon, you ca- you can actually go um, almost due east, and you're out there if oh, you really? want to cross. But I didn't do that. I went down to Grislaham on the in- inside waterway, and just because I wanted to, to go back to Grislaham because I'd visited it before, and it was a nice little place. But it's divided into Grislaham East and Grislaham West. And Grislaham East is where the ferry terminal is. And it's a very busy port ferrying people between Sweden and Finland. And I'd looked at the inland side of it, which I couldn't access from the, from the, from the, from the seaside, so to speak. And I made a determination that I'd come back and visit because it looked like a really nice little spot. So that's why I went back to Grislaham. And then coming back to actually start the journey across the Baltic, you have to sail back north. So I, I retraced my steps for about 10 nautical miles before I was able to make a starboard turn and then leave Sweden behind me and make the crossing. Okay, okay. Yeah, so, yeah, you have to go north out of Grislaham to head across then, if you're on Grislaham west then. so That's correct. That's correct. Heading east, yeah, heading yeah. east. I mean, excuse me, east heading to east. to Mariham. Right. Mm-hmm. right. And and Maryham I've been to before, and I think we've spoken about it before. It's the capital of the Orland Islands, and it's um, it's a very has a very rich maritime history, with um, a history of Cape Horners. They had a, they supplied a lot of sailors on the Cape Horn route, the trade route down to Australia in the 19th century. And there's a beautiful boat there called the Pomern, which is a almost completely restored four-master. I think was built in Glasgow in the 19th century and I think applied its trade around Cape Horn for 40 or 50 years, taking timber from Scandinavia to Australia and bringing back um, grain and, um, and uh, yeah, grain. So it's, a, it's really an interesting place to go with a lovely museum there. So we spent a, we spent a night there and then we, we sort of pushed off to all points east from there um, so there's a there's a gorgeous little nature harbour called Bjorkor, which is about 15 nautical miles away to the south east. Um, and there's never any, anybody on that island other than a groundskeeper who sometimes shows up and sometimes doesn't. So it, it was a nice, easy, easy leg. It was the first time we'd actually been able to get the sails up for Kevin and I. So it was on the third day we got the sails up for the first time. And we just did a nice downwind sail. Um, and from there, we crossed over to a place called Kokar, which you may be able to see on um, Google Earth. It's about, um, it's about, I would say, 30 miles southeast of Maryham. Um, and that's an, another terrific place to stop, K-O-K-A-R. And I'd been there before as well. Um, they have a lovely seafarer's chapel there, cozy little harbor, probably spots for about 40 boats. 
And um, my own personal favorite aspect of it is the saunas. They've got three saunas right there on the water. So you can, you know, soak your aches and pains away and get uh, get all heat, hot and bothered and then jump in and cool down. So it's a, it's a nice way to end the day um, in one of those finished saunas. And they're always roasting hot too, which is nice. I just found it. Okay, yeah. Um, now, did I wanted to ask you, do you have to clear out of sweden and into finland or is it just uh no problem no just go it's from all one to the it's other. all it's all schengen so you don't have to clear in or clear out although it's interesting you should ask because we were boarded by a finnish coast guard boat um you know you don't see very many of them around there but they they have these you know gunmetal gray pout motor boats that can really go fast one went past us looking like it was doing 45 knots. It was absolutely steaming along. And then suddenly they made a, a, a sharp right turn as they cleared our stern and saw that we were a boat registered in Annapolis, Maryland. They did a sharp right turn and came up behind us. And they were wearing sort of, you know, black black combat outfits with black jack, not jack boots, but, you know, they, they were ready for action, <laughs> let me put it that way. Well, you... They were... They were incredibly polite. They couldn't have been nicer. They just came up behind us, identified themselves, and asked permission to board. And uh, one of them, one of the the pilot, just held their boat right off our stern, about eighteen inches, and there was a slight swell. So, but he really seemed like he knew what he was doing. While the lead officer just jumped from my boat, from his boat onto mine. They just wanted to know the story of the boat. They wanted to know what an American flagged boat was doing in Finland. And I just explained, you know, that it lives, the boat lives in Sweden. I showed them the registration. I showed them the VAT. They took pictures of our passports and uh, they were on their way. And they were almost, what's the word, apologetic for taking my t- taking our time. And I thought it was just so, so pleasant to deal with. And I, I wonder, I don't want to incur the ire of any of our listeners in there, but I wondered if it would have been such a polite, pleasant experience if it was an American Coast Guard boat boarding me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we will leave that uh, up to people to decide for themselves, I guess. Yeah, let's uh, let's say there were no guns and no dogs involved. It was all very civilized. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so that was your brush with officiatum then. Yeah, that was and that was really the only brush with officiatum that I had. Um when I you know when I can talk about when I get to uh, when I got to Estonia later the you, you really notice the difference between the Finns and the Swedes who are sort of very happy, gentle, well, well organized and efficient, but they're, they're friendly folk. Um, and then when I went across to Estonia at the end of the first leg, you could really tell that they'd been under, I guess, a Russian occupation for so much longer because they were sort of uh, cold and stern faced and very efficient, uh, very officious. And every piece of paperwork I had, I had to have in triplicate. I had to take copies of everything. And there was, I had reserved a spot in the marina in Estonia without getting too far ahead of myself. And I'd, I'd, I'd put the wrong size of my boat. I think it was half a meter off. And she made a point, the, uh, the girl at the office, of, of letting me know that, you know, if I want to come and stay in Estonia, I have to remember the right, the proper length for my boat. <laughs> that sort of stuff you don't see in Sweden <laughs> and Finland. But, um, but uh, as I said, that's getting ahead of myself a little bit. Let me, let me ask you a question about the Åland Islands. Is that part of, of Sweden or Finland or is that an independent sort of uh, municipality? <laughs> 
Well, yes, it sort of is. I mean, it is part of Finland, but the people are ethnically Swedish. And um, even though you pay in euros and in Sweden you pay in krona, all, the language that's used is Swedish. So it's, it, it was kind of a disputed area for a long time. And I think that the two governments came to an agreement sometime in the middle of the 20th century, and it was sort of decreed by the UN. So now it's... Um, they've sort of both ha countries are happy with the arrangements um but it does feel very much like they have a foot in both camps because they seem in outlook and as i said in language and ethnicity they're swedish but they are geographically speaking part of finland um and they do even have their own flag which is a blend of the two so it's it's kind of interesting um and you you sort of notice when you you're no longer in the orland islands and this is this is the only way i could tell was that i stopped at a place where suddenly um, they weren't speaking in Swedish anymore, and the, the 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 items in the restaurant were no longer in Swedish. They were suddenly in Finnish. And like I said, there's no de line of demarcation that I'm aware of. It's just we'd left the Orland Islands and we were the Orland Archipelago, and now we were in the Finnish Archipelago. So that's kind of how it works. What about the price of provisioning Sweden versus Orland versus Finland? Um. It's pretty much the same, I think, to be honest with you. I mean, they both have high taxes over there. Um, I didn't notice a huge difference in prices of provisioning. You know, what I noticed was that there was just more choice in Sweden. Both countries are, have small populations, but it certainly seemed as though the distance between big municipalities with big grocery stores seemed to be much bigger in Finland. So there's a couple of places we went to where it was kind of you go into the... the the grocery store, and you had the choice that you'd expect in a 7-Eleven in terms of, you know, not the items, but there wasn't a huge amount of choice. Whereas you could be in a similar sort of place in Sweden and you'll have a full supermarket. So that's really the difference I noted. Um, and as a sailor, of course, the most important item is the thing that you most closely pay attention to is the price of booze. Um, and in and in Sweden it's expensive, and in Finland it's even more expensive. Mm, so um, okay. I I waited till I got over to Estonia to stock up, where the prices are about one quarter of what they were um, back in uh, in Sweden and Finland. Wow. Okay. Big difference. And what about the availability? Because I know in in Sweden it was a bit of a headache to even find alcohol. Yeah. Again, it's um, you once you're in um, once you're in a, a reasonably big town, there will always be one of their government-run liquor stores, the system Balajit, as they're called. But if you go to a town, you know, nice towns with, with decent restaurants, it seems reasonably um, cosmopolitan. If the government has decided that it's not important enough to have a liquor store there, there's no liquor store. You have to go online, you have to find the nearest one, and they will order what you want, and they'll deliver for you to an address in wherever it is you are, and charge you appropriate accordingly. So you, it's not the land of convenience. The customer is definitely not king there like as they are in America where you can get whatever you want around the corner 24 hours a day. How about Estonia? Um, Estonia is... I didn't really leave Tallinn, the okay. capital there, um, so I can't really say. Um, all I can say is that there were a lot more liquor stores and it was a lot cheaper. <laughs> so it was... Uh, yeah, I think... Uh, and plus, I had a couple of real drinkers coming on my, on my boat later, um, <laughs> so I made sure that they couldn't look at me repro with reproach in their eyes and say, Neil, there's no beer, there's no red wine, there's no white wine, um, you know, Cuban rum, all the, all, this, all the real essentials to make a journey um, worthwhile. <laughs> all right, so from Kokar, 
So this is like day three then when we get the cocoa? Right. That's, that, that's day three or day four of the journey. Um, and from there, we headed east to a place called Yurmo, which is spelt J-U-R-M-O. And it's, um, it's about 25 nautical miles. Um, wasn't much of a sail. I don't think we had much wind. Um, and Yurmo really doesn't have much to recommend it. I chose it because it was perfectly located between Kokar and the next stop of Rosala. But Yurmo is a very flat island. Um, it's a little bit further out into um, what's becoming now the Gulf of Finland. So it was a little more flat, featureless terrain. No, uh, coming, there was, a, there was a small area that was wooded, but basically it was rocks and heather and gorse. Pretty un, un, um, uneventful. I and mean, you know, it doesn't have much to recommend it. But the, the most interesting thing was there was a little, um, a little alpaca farm there. And there was a little cottage industry where they would make um, scarves and mufflers and things like that. And after we docked in the harbour, Kevin and I took a walk around the island. We got to the alpaca farm. And one in particular took a liking to me. And um, he tried to mount me and tried to hump me. So <laughs> we made, a, um, we made a, a quick escape from there. We went back and had some dinner. And I, I t an emailed a friend of mine in Los Angeles with a picture. It was, I think it was morning in Los Angeles. So I just sent him a picture and I said, of me and the alpaca. And I said, as you'll see, I've got a new girlfriend. <laughs> and he, text, he texted me back almost immediately and said, well, I don't agree with your assessment. He said, judging by the picture you sent me, he said, you don't have a new girlfriend, but maybe the alpaca does. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm looking at Germo, and it looks like there's a little marina there. Did you tie up at that little uh, marina yeah. there? Yeah, the marina, I guess, probably holds about... It's, it's very tight. Um, it's a very tight little fairway in, um, and the wind had really started to blow just as we came in. So we had to be, you know, on top of it. And I, I guess probably there's places for about 40 boats there, give or take, and it was about half full. And it was all Finns. I think I saw one German flag and one Swedish flag, but the rest was all Finns. Um, and then there's probably half a... But people live there. As I said, there's a little cottage industry. There was a, there was a soccer field right in front of the harbour. And there was a little gathering of huts there where you could, you know, buy some of the local uh, baker baked goods. You could get some coffee. And as I said, a couple of the, the alpaca things, if you wanted to buy a scarf or a muffler or a pair of gloves or something. But apart from that, and there were some houses on the other side so uh, of the island. So I guess there's a small community there. I would think maybe maybe two or three hundred people. But I, my guess is it's probably um, a summer resort for people who want a house out in the islands. That would be my guess, because I think you you, you go crazy there in, in the long, dark winters, and there's nothing to do. So so it looks like you grab a buoy to pull, hold your one end out then as you pull in and, and tie off your bow to the to the dock. Yeah, yeah, and that's, that's typical. I mean, you see that almost everywhere. Um, the only place it doesn't happen is if you've got a side tie or a little pontoon. But, you know, I've been doing that for about, um, this is, as I said, my third year there. And it, it's very simple. I mean, you just you just make sure that you're coming in nice and nice and gently. And you have your bow person waiting on the widest part of the beam with um, with a, with the setup that I have, that most people have, is you have a, 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 a reel at the back of the boat on the on the stern pulpit. And it's attached to um, to a reel. Yeah, it was stern webbing. And you just have a little uh, clip on there. A little shackle and as you go by you just clip it onto the onto the stern buoy which is always red and has a hook at the top a loop at the top 
And then once you've done that, um, you ease the boat forward gently into the berth, you tie off the bow lines, and then you tighten the stern line until you're snug fore and aft. And so it's, it's, pretty, it's pretty simple. That's interesting. In, in, uh, in Italy last year, I pulled into a little place. I'm trying to remember. Gruno. Gruno was the name of the town. And they had the same system, but you would ju- we just tied our... St- you know, I don't see any boats in this, this Google Earth image I'm looking at that are stern to. They're all bow to. But there's no reason you couldn't go stern to, is there? Um, no, there isn't any reason. Um, I guess people do for whatever reason. Maybe it's for their privacy or, or, or what have you, but um, that's the that's the what's the word protocol over there. Hmm. I don't ever remember seeing anybody go in stern too, but there's nothing to stop you doing it. Yeah, for me, I'm just thinking of my boat. Uh, I would have to climb out the end of my bowsprit to step off the boat. Where if All I'm right. if I'm stern to, it's easy to step off my boom can off onto the dock, and so I prefer to go stern to now. But uh, well. Yeah, you've got to remember that the, the Swedish boats are all built, almost all of them, with an open bow pulpit, uh, yeah, um, yeah. so for easy stepping off. And in fact, as I think I may have mentioned before on the podcast, um, my, the previous owners of the boat, Andy and Mia, actually took the bow pulpit off for easy on and off. Um, and I haven't found the need to 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 replace that yet. Um, but obviously, I'll do that um, when 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 the boat leaves those waters. But um, yeah, it's uh, it, whether you're in a marina or whether you're going bows to on an island. Um, yeah, it's it's important to be able to step off easily, <laughs> and so yeah, and that's the way it works. But um, you could go either way if you wanted to. So, was there a charge for this marina, or was it free? Yeah, the charge was um, I think twenty eight euros, so okay. thirty one, thirty two dollars, and that was about normal. I mean, everywhere I went, and this again is is typical of the region, France. The most, the most expensive marina until I went over to Estonia, and they charged a little more. Um, the most ex- expensive marina that I went to was the main one in Stockholm, which is called Vasahamnen, and that's right on the waterfront in the middle of Stockholm, and they charged thirty eight dollars a night it's just ridiculously cheap that's the one i joined um, you at right that's the one i were at when i sailed indeed the, yeah that's okay. right that's yeah. right um and then when you go out to the um to the boondocks uh, it gets cheaper but i think the least i ever paid but i get the impression it's it's regulated by the government one way or another i think the least i ever paid was 15 um and as i said so that's the range between 15 and 40 um, but in, in a couple of places I went in Finland, the price of the sauna was more expensive than the price of the, uh, of the berth for the night. So it just shows you where their, where their priorities lie. So are the, are the saunas, those two little buildings right on the water there? I'm looking at yeah, this. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. And it's funny, you know, I think a lot of places they determine how many he- how many bathrooms you need by how many berths, how many boats are going <laughs> to, you know, the, the, what the capacity is. Well, over there, they measure the, the amount of saunas you need by <laughs> because they don't ever anyone, want anyone to be disappointed. So, for instance, when I was in Kokard, which I think took about uh, 60 boats, there were three saunas because uh, so that everyone would be able to have their turn, you know, and you book it. Uh, an hour at the t- an hour at a time, and typically they're they're open from six o'clock in the morning till midnight. So it's um, everyone can always have a sauna at all hours in those places. So it's 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 nice. It's it's just it's just there. It's a very important cultural touchstone for them. <laughs> all right, from Yermo, where do we go? So from Yermo, we went to um, Rosala, 
which was about um, 28 nautical miles due east, and that's spelled R-O-S-A-L-A. And we had an absolutely gorgeous sail. I think that was probably the best sail of the trip. The wind was blowing about 14 to 16, and it was right on our quarter. So uh, I said to, Ke you know, my boat, as you know, is a yawl. And I said to Kevin, you know, we're gonna, just going to go jib and jigger. Um, we're not even going to raise the main. And you're going to see what that experience is like. And he was a very calm helmsman. So I would leave him helming for hours at a time. I was very happy to let him drive. Um, so, it, it, you know, it was a sunny day. The temperature was probably in the low 70s. And my boat was absolutely screaming along at about six and a half knots, which for my boat, which is a 35 footer, but that's not at the waterline. The waterline, I think, is 24, 25. So for me to go six and a half knots for straight for four, five hours is really, that's flying by my standards. So we had a beautiful, um, we had a beautiful sail up to Rosala. And just to revisit what I said about the fact that sometimes you, 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 you forget lessons that you previously learned, we were just feeling very good about ourselves. And as we approached the marina, there was a very small channel to what we needed to go to, go through. And I just said, you know, Kevin, everything's going so well. Let's just sail up this small channel. And, of course, the moment that I did that, we got backwinded um, right after we tacked across. And, you know, I immediately had to go down, put the engine on, turn the boat around, jibe round. And then we went back to the slightly bigger bay, dropped the sails, and then motored up. You know, and the, this channel was barely a quarter of a mile long. But that's the way things work, not just in sailing in general, but specifically in that part of the world. When you start to feel that you can just cut corners, you end up, um, it ends up biting you on the rear end. So, again, that was a lesson that I'd learned last year and I needed to learn again this year. It's just, you know, when you get to a narrow channel, unless you're in a Sabbath or an Opti, um, drop your sails and put your engine on, <laughs> you know, because you will get blown onto the rocks. It just happens, you know, the, the, and it's the Bernoulli effect plus the very, very shifty conditions in those tiny little uh, channels. So you just have to stay, you have to be prudent at all times up there. So Rosala looks like it's got a lot of little keys that come out, private keys it looks like. Where were you then? Um, there is a main, um, there is, the private keys are on the left side as you come into the marina mm -hmm. and then the marina sort of turns round there and there's a big jetty sticking out with probably room for 12 boats mm. so uh i'm not sure which one you're looking at if you're looking actually because there's more than one um there's more than one harbor there so if you're looking at the one at the east end of the uh, the west end of the of the island uh -huh. that's where i'm um, looking at yeah that's... okay so I can answer your question. Let me zoom in a little bit. Yeah, so I see the island of Rosala, and there's a place called Sabholms Sund at the right end, um, and that was where the the uh, the marina was. So I don't know if that's the marina that you're looking at. No, I'm uh, not looking at the other I'm, side. I'm looking at the far west side of Rosala, where that okay. that little bit of a village is. So I'll move on over there. Yeah. Yeah. And so, oh, I see what, yeah, the pier, yes, the piers do come out a little bit, but there's a big one that sticks out, and that one is, the, there's like five of them, and there's a big one that sticks out that's bigger than all the rest of them, and that was the one that you uh, tied off to. 
Okay. And that place, that place was nice too. They had a couple of little chalets for people who wanted to stay, who'd arrived by land, and they had the hottest sauna I've ne- I've ever been in my life, which was wonderful, and a, a little grocery store. And after Yermo the night before, which was a very undistinguished place, uh, Rosala, you know, you know what sailing is. It's the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. <laughs> so um, it was nice to stay there. And then um, the following night, I promised, I knew that in two days we were going to be in Tallinn. And I promised Kevin that we would do some bows to anchoring at least once. So we headed off to a place called the Bay of Modamagan, which is spelt M-O-D-E-R-M-A-G-A-N. And that's 40, 40 nautical miles east of Rosala. And this was a place that in the guidebooks had been praised as a good place. It's very sheltered and that you can do some bows to anchoring. But when we actually got there, the only place that was bows to had a bunch of green buoys. And you never see green buoys over there. They're almost always red. And there was a fellow who was dropping his hook right just in the middle of the bay. And I said, what do these green buoys mean? He says it's private, privately owned from a yacht club. You can't tie up unless you're a member of the yacht club. Now, um, it was starting to rain and the skies were really darkening and it was about seven o'clock in the evening and I was feeling a little hungry and I, I didn't want to then start from scratch. And I'd noticed on the way in on the other side of the bay that there actually, on the entrance, there was actually some promising looking and quite sheltered rocks. So we just pulled in over there. It turned out that we were beautifully sheltered. We dropped the stern anchor and um, I had Kevin. I just brought the boat into the rocks. Kevin jumped off. And we did a three-point bow mooring to three of the big pine trees there. And um, we spent a very pleasant evening. The rain came down, but we were pretty snug and pretty sheltered. And I made him a Thai chicken curry for dinner. <laughs> and uh, I, think he, I think he enjoyed that, that aspect of it the most. I mean, waking up in that place, that kind of place, when you've just got the, the water and the granite and the fir trees, and you're in this little snug little little place in the middle of nowhere it's really a, it's really a special experience and i think afterwards he said to me that that was his favorite location that we moored in yeah i'm zooming in and i can see those buoys you're talking about off to the north side of that bay the north uh, east side of that bay and, right and you so must... if you if you head west just a little bit um there's a um there is a sort of a sweeping bay that comes round and sticks out a little bit i mean i'm talking a quarter of a mile from there mm-hmm. and that was where we were able to find a spot and again I, I i've got a google um earth image of it and i'll stick that up on my website too so people can get a better idea of it and i've i've also got some uh, some drone footage which is kind of nice as well i i bought a drone and i experimented with it there and i'm happy to say i didn't drop it in the water so so um <laughs> listeners will be able to see a bit of that on my website as well it looks like a re- lot of really protected areas around there anyway. I mean, there, it looks like there's plenty of places. I guess, do you have to worry about the depth uh, where you drop your anchor? Is it shallow enough that you always can hit the bottom? Um, well, yes. I mean, the it, it, it always has been for me, and very often on the charts, you'll actually see that they highlight areas that are good for... Um, that are good for for that um but you know you've got your depth finder on there and usually once you get 
within three boat lengths, you're in about 30 feet or 25 feet of water. Okay. So that's fine. That's fine for dropping the anchor. And then, um, in, and this, you know, it, it still amazes people when I when I send such so, so, pictures of doing bows to anchoring, because they just can't quite grasp the concept of, of of you know putting your boat so close to the rocks. But when you have no tide and it's completely glassy, you know, and then you have a cutaway forefoot, which is what I have on my boat, and a steeply um, shell and a steep con shelf, so to speak, right off that granite. Mm -hmm. You can be you can be two feet off of the granite. But your bow might have six feet of water under it, and yeah. that's plenty, you yeah. know. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So yeah, if you're looking at the Bay of Modamagan, which I've got up here, and you can see where the buoys are, if you if you leave the channel there that you come in, mm -hmm. and then you sort of continue to the west, just a couple of hundred yep. meters, you'll yep. see that there's a nice little bay on the other side, and it yeah. looks pretty sheltered. And the wind was coming from the northeast, so it was uh, from the northwest. So we were we were exactly in the right spot for the for that for the yeah. uh, for the conditions. Looks like there's plenty of spots in there, and even around the corner. Yeah. So there's lots of places you could go. In yeah. There. yeah, yeah. And there wasn't, and, and typically there wasn't another boat. We we didn't see another boat the whole time we were there. But that's <laughs> that's the way it is there. It's uh, it, it, you could quite easily have five times as many boaters as you do, and you still have plenty of room to yourself. All right. Cool. All right. So um, the next day after that, we headed to Tallinn, um, which is um, in Estonia, um, and that's sort of a, a southeast passage. Yeah. And it was yeah. about, I think, for 50 nautical miles, give or take. Um, Kevin was getting off the boat the next day, and he was going to do a tour of the Baltic states. He went down to Latvia and Lithuania, and then he went from there to um, to uh, Prague, I believe. Um, so. That was the last really big leg that I did with him. Um, and it, the wind really didn't cooperate. We didn't have much wind to start with, so we were motoring. And then when it did come up, it was dead down wind. And because of the length of the passage, I didn't want to be jibing at deep angles. I just wanted to get into into Estonia. And again, I did, wasn't quite sure of the bureaucracy and how much we had to um, clear in and what they were requiring. So we motored. And, um, you know, it's just a big port with a, a big ferry terminal there. There was um, a British Navy ship with, uh, I think, HMS Chatham or HMS Kent was there. Um, and you sort of go in and it's a little intimidating to start with. But I booked into the old town marina there. And there's what looked like a little channel, almost like a canal. And you just take a little left outside of the, once you get into the main harbour there, and it's a very, very snug little harbour where I had a reservation. It's probably room for about 40 boats. And they had my name in, in a white, uh, white uh, grease board with the, with the name Neil there, right? But they didn't even bother <laughs> using my last name. I guess I'm famous through your podcast or for some other reason. <laughs> well, they know who you so are, we yes. <laughs> So we tied up there. And that was a five-minute walk to Old Town, which was just this sort of gorgeous medieval Baltic state town. And um, we spent a very nice evening and had dinner there. So it's uh, it's not a bad place to go. And the facilities there are excellent, Franz. Um, the, the facilities there were better than anywhere other than um, Turku in Finland and um, Stockholm in, in, in Sweden that I'd been to. But as I said, the, the officials had a, were a little more officious. And um, there was a sense of security, like they needed security there. When, when you pull into the, the harbour there, you pull into the marina, you're actually trapped. You can't get out by foot. 
you have to go to a fence with a gate and a, a little intercom and you have to say, this is me, here's my boat, this is the berth I'm in, this is the reservation I made. And then they'll give you they'll, they'll give you a number that you dial into the keypad and that's how you get out and get out and walk to the main office where you pay your fee. So I got the impression that they were just a lot more security conscious for whatever reason over there than they are in uh, in the countries where I just left. Well, I'm looking at this, and that may be because it looks like me like there's a big barbed, I mean, not barbed door, but a big fence around a whole bunch of that area, and that may be because that's where uh, the foreign boats come in and they have to clear into customs, and that might be the reason. I yeah. don't know. I, don't know. I mean, that, that probably is it. Um, but, you know, it, it, it's interesting. People ask me, you know, what, what's the difference between the three states and I, between those three countries? And I said, well, if I were to put it in the vernacular, I would say that, you know, Sweden is one of my most famous countries, my, fa- my I beg your pardon, my most favorite countries on earth in terms of the people and the architecture and the landscape and the culture and just what a civilized country it is. And then Finland is still great, but it's Finland is 90 percent of Sweden. And Estonia is 65% of Finland. <laughs> but, and I, I don't want to offend any Estonians, but it's just not quite the same. It's got some catching up to do, let me put it that way. Um, um, but it was, it was fine. The old town, as I said, was absolutely delightful. And um, it you know, has a lot of echoes of sort of, I think, what they called the Hanseatic League, which I think was some sort of trading league that went back to medieval times. Um, and you can feel that in the air, too. But you also see people sitting, you know, with tattoos and spiky hair, sitting on street corners, drinking beer and smoking cigarettes. And you don't really see that in either Sweden or Finland, at least not the parts that I've been to. And there's a sort of sense that it was a little more economically depressed and that the people were a little more depressed, too. So it was it just had a little edge to it that I hadn't experienced before. Is this where you picked up a new crew? Well, I picked them up in Helsinki. Okay. So Kevin Kevin disappeared the next morning at nine, and I single-handed over to Helsinki. I just there wasn't really any wind, so I motored over, um, and I stayed in the main Helsinki marina, and I picked up two more folks, um, uh, a gal by the name of Grace, and a German gentleman by the name of Knut, both of whom are sailors in Marina del Rey, who I've sailed with before. So we did some provisioning. I, I hooked up with them the next day on the Saturday, um, Saturday, July 6th, I'm guessing. Um, and we did some provisioning and got to know each other. And I, I gave them just a few pointers about, how, you know, how to tie, um, how to tie a, 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 cl- a clove hitch because neither of them seemed to know how to do it. And I was just talking about the need sometimes to get a fender down quickly and the sort of maneuvers that you have to make when you come in um, and uh, doing a, a stern buoy tie-up and stuff like that. And then we set sail from there back to Estonia, uh, just because they wanted to see Estonia. And then we headed off. So I don't need to cover Estonia again. And from there, we started to head west. Um, and we headed up to a place called Yusaro, which is spelt J-U-S-S-A-R-O. And that's a nice little island as well, but we didn't pull into the harbour until about 8 p.m. And it was getting dark and it was starting to rain and the harbour was full. So, again, we did what I'd done with Kevin in the sense that I, I looked around and said, well, you guys wanted a, a bows to experience, so you're going to have one quicker than you thought. And just across the way from the Jusuro Marina, there was a beautiful little spot for, to, to go bows to. 
So they were knocked out again by the experience. They they just thought it was absolutely fantastic. And waking up in the morning there, bows to on the rocks was uh, was. They both told me it was a very special experience. So it, it worked out well. And and sometimes, as you know, Franz, it really does. Things don't go the way you want them to, and then you have to improvise, and then you have an experience you didn't expect, and then that's a bonus. And and that was the way it turned out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember when you and I and uh, and and uh, Jack. We're in uh, Astapalaya, and the, mm-hmm. the marina was full, and we just went around the corner, and I, I dropped an anchor and backed up to the uh, other side of the, the uh, breakwater. Mm-hmm. And that's what we did. You know, same thing. Of course, the harbor master came and kicked us off a little later on, but we still, that's what we did. <laughs> <laughs> it served its purpose, didn't it? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. That looks like a lot of places to anchor there, too. I mean, lots of places there. Okay. Oh, you're sport for choice. I mean, you could, you could, you know, the Finns will tell you that there's some Finns I met, they've been sailing there for 40 years and they just, they say, I don't want to go anywhere else. It's just too nice. And you've just got too many beautiful spots and you really do. Um, so from Yusuro, we headed off to Hanko, which is spelled H-A-N-K-O. And that's, I guess, about um, 20 nautical miles west of Yusuro. And it's quite a big sailing center. They had some very, very good facilities there. And they were just, I think, preparing for a regatta that was sponsored by Mercedes-Benz. So, um, and there were three three marinas there together. Um, and I think that there was actually a race into Hanko because a couple of boats went past us very fast. And the the racing instincts of my fellow sailors kicked in and we tried to race them without getting in their way, which was kind of fun. It was a lot of upwind work and a lot of tacking, but it was kind of fun. Um, so we get into Hanko again, gorgeous facilities, lots of restaurants nearby, uh, and a nice little taxi free taxi that left every five minutes from the dock to take us across the town. And, um, we had a lovely Italian meal there, and we went and did some karaoke. We were the only people <laughs> in the place. Um, but uh, I, I performed Mac the Knife. Canute performed Only the Lonely. And um, Grace performed These Boots Are Made for Walking. So yeah, we, had, uh, we had a good time. And if I can dig up some of that, um, some of that uh, video, I'll certainly stick that on my website too, and hopefully I won't scare off your listeners. Did, uh, <laughs> did, did Johnny English make an appearance? Johnny English did make an appearance. Yes, yes. Johnny English, I think, did his uh, did his best rap to uh, uh, something you probably never heard of, and you're better for it. It's called um, "Buster Move" by Young MC. And uh, I, I, what can I tell you? It was the rum getting. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I'm looking at Hanko, and it looks like it's a town laid out on a grid pattern. So where is the old, where is the, the real town? Is it around the marina, or is it around the corner there? Where, where is it at? Let's have a look. Um, yeah, it is. Let me have a look at what you're looking at. So the, the marina there, as you see, is at the sort of south end, mm-hmm. and it's pretty clearly delineated. And the main town is in a little bit across a, a busy road, but we didn't go into the main town. If you go to the left of the marina, and I don't know whether or not this is how updated it is because it looks like it's not that busy, but there's a little cluster of places right by the Hanko Museum. It's called the Hangon Museo. That's what it's written down there. And there's another place called Krogars. 
and right and there's a couple of hotels there but right there in that waterfront it's it's it there's everything you need there's grocery stores and there's restaurants and as i said karaoke bars and what have you so we didn't venture any further afield we didn't go into the town itself okay all right just uh um it looks like it's, it's, it's almost it looks like a fairly commercial port too i mean i'm looking down here at the very corner end it looks like uh uh, either it's a ferry port or a uh, it must it might be a ferry port too because I'm seeing lots of cars or, or containers yeah, stacked it, up. Here. It is, and, and in fact, there's there is um, container ships that leave there. There are ferries that leave there, and there are military ships. There was a couple of places just on the extreme left there that um, there were coast guard vessels, quite big coast guard vessels, seventy footers, okay. very powerful, fast boats. So the, Hanko is is one of those. Um, is one of those hubs for that activity. So okay, it's, um, so it's really part of the mainland, uh, Finland. Yes, it, looks it is. Like. Okay. Yes, it is. Um, so from there, we headed west to a place called Kaznas, which is spelled just like Kansas, only the N and the S are trans transposed. So that's K A S N A S, um, and that was much quieter than Hanko. Um, it's a little bit north west um and you can probably find it it sort of sticks out at the bottom of a little um uh, promontory if you like um and right at the bottom of that promontory is a large marina which i think probably could house about 100 boats and they had um again good facilities laundry a nice restaurant the restaurants there are called Raventola's, R-A-V-E-N-T-O-L-A. So we spent a lot of time at the Kasnas Raventola. I think I had a lay day there because I was on deadline for my newspaper. So Kurt and Grace, Kurt, I beg your pardon, Knut and Grace spent some time exploring and they went up into Kasnas town and they went to a lovely little place. I, I said to the, the harbour master, what do you recommend for visitors here and he, in the town? He said, it's not a town, it's a village. <laughs> and I went, okay. And he said, I recommend the, 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 the tea house. There's a tea house up, up the road down a lane. And actually, we all went there, and it was absolutely gorgeous. We, we turned off this main road. We just walked up the road. And we turned down this little lane, and there was one hand-painted sign. And about another 200 metres round the corner... There was a lovely little building with a corrugated iron roof surrounded with, with um, wildflowers, these gorgeous weather-beaten tables and chairs outside. And they had um, fantastic teas, hibiscus teas and lavender teas and focaccia bread. And we sat there and just had a really beautiful tea time, the three of us. And uh, again, it's one of those things that it's so nice to give to your guests. You, you have a little a surprise place that you go to. And they turn around and say, "This is absolutely spectacular. Really exceeded my 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 wishes." So that was that was nice. It was it's, it's a special little place if people are in that part of the world. All right, it took me a while to find. It. I kept spelling it wrong, even though you gave yeah. it to me. So there it is. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So now you're out in the hinterlands again. It looks like then. Right, we're out in the hinterlands, but um, it, it, we're we're getting close to Turku. And Turku is sort of the equivalent to Annapolis or Rhode, you know, or, or, or maybe Rhode Island, in the sense that it is the seafaring capital of of Finland. And that was our next stop, and that's spelled T U R K U. And we sailed up there, nice sail with the wind on our beam, 
That's directly and, north quite a ways, isn't it, then? Yeah, it's okay. directly north. It's about, um, let's see, I think it's about 40, it's about 39 nautical miles. And it, you can sail up this channel for probably 30 of those miles, and it's fine. But then you start to deal with a lot of, of ferry traffic. So we had all sorts of ferry traffic that we had to dodge. And it's, uh, I think right towards the end, we just said, OK, let's... And the, the channel markers became more and more constrained. So we dropped the sails and we motored in for the last five miles. And the beauty of Turku, again, if, you, if you're looking at it on Google, Google Earth, you'll see that the channel comes up, uh, the, the main channel, the approach channel comes up, and then there is a smaller channel that looks like a river, looks like a mouth of a river. And that goes right into the middle of Turku town. And that is where I booked a place at the marina. Um, and this was kind of interesting because they have these tall piles um, either side of you, which is delineates your berth. There's no the, the 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 channel itself is too narrow for them to put the stern buoy out there. So you are you're sort of secured port and starboard by these big pilings sticking up, and then you just tie off your bow at the front. But you are right on the waterfront, and the waterfront is where all the action is. It's where all of the young people in Turku go out to party. And it was just restaurant after restaurant after restaurant, and we pulled in, and there was a heavy metal band playing on the on the on the on a on a, on a boat like a, a retired ferry just across the other side of the channel. So, and it was so loud, I couldn't make my instructions heard with my crew. So, <laughs> I, it didn't give us the greatest of impressions of what it was going to be like. You know, the Finns really like their heavy metal music, and I know you're not a fan of that nope. any, any more than you're a thumping disco and techno. Um, <laughs> But fortunately, after about 20 minutes, they stopped, and um, we had a nice meal there. And uh, it was actually it was actually a, a nice a nice spot to stop, and it was a great place for crew to depart because it's um, it's about 45 minutes on the train. It costs about 20 euros back to Helsinki Airport. So they both left me the next morning, and um, it was from there that my my new crew came in the following day. Okay, so I'm looking at this river, and if you go up a little farther, you run into a bridge. Is that right? That's right. Okay. So yeah. we we were just before the bridge. The um, yeah. There's there's sort of three bridges, but if you take the one that's closest to the sea, so to speak, the 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 main harbour is right there. In fact, it's about two thirds of the way up, and you can actually see it. Yeah, I can Google I can Earth see it. I can see boats on uh, the west side. I can see yeah, a lot of side right. ties on the right side of the river, and uh, and then on the left side of the river, you've got some bows in on the left side of the And river. that's us. That's okay. exactly where it is. There's space for about 20 boats. So if you are planning to go there, you must book ahead. I made a point of booking ahead. But, yeah, but it's a great location, and, um, you know, there's lots to see and do in that town. It's fun, but it's just after the quiet, you know, after the solitude that came before, it's a little... A little Neil, I lost you for a second. You... Uh... You said it was just before a little. You still there? I'm sorry. Say that again, Franz. Are you uh, you broke up there for a second, Neil? You okay. You said it was a nice. So where was I? You said it was a nice place to visit, but it was a little, and then you broke up. Oh yes, it was. It was a little hectic because ah. you know the, the couple of nights before we'd been bows to in the middle of nowhere. Yeah. And you know I live in Los Angeles. It's a big, thriving, bustling city, but it's really easy to just step into the wilderness and then when you get back to Turku which by most people's estimation would be a medium-sized town it just seems like a sprawling metropolis compared to what I was used to you know 
What's the topography there? I'm, I'm looking at one of these parks, and it looks like it zigzags up. Uh, is it is it hilly or is it flat? It's mostly flat. Okay. Um, you know, um, so, you know, there are a few hills once you get further out of town, but it's mostly flat. Okay. All right. Then there's just must. I'm looking at this little park, and it's looked like a zigzag road through the park, but that just may be so you have more picnic grounds or something like that. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It, it, it's a very well. It is basically a grid that has been overlaid on the older city, but it's very easy to get around. And they even have those electric scooters that they have down here in Los Angeles. So I was able to take a couple of electric scooters to the to the uh, train station and back. But um, it's nice. It's a nice town and a great place to uh, to to stop over for crew or if you need a lay day or whatever else. So it's um, it's it, it's nice. I would recommend it. All right, so now we're changing crews here. So this is going to be your third crew that joins you in Turku. Right, so on the following Sunday, uh, we arrived on Turku on Friday night, and then the crew left on Saturday. Grace and Canute left. And on the Sunday, an old friend from school who lives in the south of Spain came to visit. His name's Richard, and he sailed with me two years ago, so it was his second time on Octaurus. So he, he joined me. And we headed on on Monday. We left um, to a place called Norsby, which is actually spelled N-A-S-B-Y. And I think that was about 35 nautical miles. Good sailing. A lot of islands that we had to dodge. But um, a couple of big fairways, we were able to get the sails up and keep them up. Um, and that again, it's a nice little harbour. Um, although I had a, I had an interesting experience there that I have to say was a bit unnerving. Um, if you look at uh, the island of Norsby on Google Earth, you'll see um, there is a place called Hutskar, H-O-U-T-S-K-A-R, on the sort of northeast side of the island in the in the inlet there, and that was where the the the, the marina was and the marina as i said it held about 20 boats i think it wasn't particularly big but um you know the Finns, as i said they're mad for their for their for their for their sauna culture and they are very friendly but they have certain parameters that they expect you to stay within which is fine um but what's interesting is that they discourage the use of towels because they're an egalitarian society and they figure when everyone's naked, you know, no one feels better than anyone else for whatever reason. So, and they have these little towels that you take from a dispensing machine that you're encouraged to sit on. So I, I was in the harbour and I decided and it was cold and wet and rainy and I decided to go for a sauna. And you walk into the sauna and every single space is taken and there are, you know, grown-ups, but then there's little kids looking at you as well. And it becomes sort of a little uncomfortable, to be honest with you, you know, but you just sort of try to hide in the – and you're, you're essentially on the naughty step, so to speak. You're at the bottom of the, of, the, of the steps there until someone leaves and then you can sort of work your way up in the hierarchy till you're at the top, of the top <laughs> bench. But it's it's just a little unnerving how comfortable how comfortable you know I'm no prude by any by any means but living in America where we can be a little puritanical it just definitely does take an adjustment um, just being naked in front of a bunch of strangers you know um, but uh, whatever you get used to it um, so so Norsby Norsby is nice. Um, just nothing. It's a nice little island too, and uh, so there's sort of camping on the island, and it's a place where I think a lot of Finns go to recreate, who don't necessarily have 
um, boats. So there's bike paths and all sorts of things to see and do. And there's a there's a Viking museum there. So it's um, it was a nice little spot. Yeah, it looks like that it's a nice walking island too if you want to go for a yes. walk on. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Um so after Norsby, we headed over to a place called Degerby, which is spelled D E G E R B Y. Uh and by that was the that was the transition back into the Orland Islands and it's just north of the place Bjorkor where I stopped off. So you you'll see you see it on the map. You'll see that basically we're heading back towards Maryham. Hmm. Um, I must find it. Degab- I must be on a different one because it took me west from where you were before. Yeah, I'm sorry, west. It, it's, but it's sort of it's southwest. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And and Degaby is nice too. It's quite a large island. There's a lot of people who live there. But the the um, marina is right at the westernmost tip. Um, there's a little town there called Folio, F-O-G-L-O, uh, and but the island itself is called Degaby, and there's a, a decent marina with, you know, halfway decent um, facilities there and a little ferry terminal right next to you where the boats come in. Um, I can't really say that much about it because it's it's not... It's neither good nor bad. It was just fine. And it was the, the nicest thing about it was there's a beautiful sail over from Norsby. Um, but once you get there, you're getting pretty close back to Maryham and um, the area of Lemland, which is what they call that particular part of the Orland Islands. And, you know, I know we've been on for an hour, but I wanted to tell you about an experience that I had that was by far the best experience of the summer that happened the following day. All right. You will indulge me. That's great. So so the last t- year I was there, we stopped off at this little island called Rodham, where the previous owners of the boat, Andy and Mia, had taken had taken her, um, and they'd recommended it to me. So we went back when I was with one of my previous crew, and we'd met this fellow in the, in the harbour master's office who was fascinated to hear some English accents and then fascinated with the history of the boat and came onto Arcturus and he, he, we got out the charts and he showed us some lovely bows to anchorages. And we stayed in contact on social media. And when I was in Maryham, uh, uh, just at the beginning of this trip, he texted me and said, can we meet for a drink? And I said, well, I'm leaving early tomorrow, but I'll be back in two weeks. He said, great, contact me then. Well, this fellow is one of the leading tenors in the Finnish National Opera, and it was his 50th birthday party and he texted me and said i'll be back at the island of rodham on saturday come to my birthday party and bring your crew with you so i didn't really know what to expect france but it was one of these experiences that will stay with me for the rest of my life it was absolutely sensational we we pulled into rodham we docked the boat and that's rodham's a nice little place and again you can they can read more about that on on my website but um, we went to the harbour master's office and we said, we're here for Christian's party. And he gestured to this little footpath up to a hill and he said, just go over there. When you crest the hill, you'll see the tents. So we crested this hill and there was this lovely tent just over the crest of the hill with this backdrop of the granite islands, uh, which are covered in lichen and wildflowers, this beautiful blue sky. And the tent was full of his friends, many of whom were opera singers. And he sat me at the head table next to his... He said, he said oh, I'm so pleased you're here. He sat me next to the head table. I had his mother on one side 
and um, uh, one of the leading sopranos in the Finnish National Opera on my left. And for the next five hours, they had this wonderful party where we ate, where we drank. We were drinking Aquavit, followed by drinking songs, some of which I'd heard before. But it's one thing to hear a drinking song when it's sung by a, a civilian. But when you hear a drinking song that's sung by a bunch of opera singers, it was <laughs> unbelievable. Um, and then Christian, the birthday boy, got up and gave a very, very moving speech about how he was first introduced to opera, how much he owed his mother and all the people who supported him and his first tutors. And I'm listening to the story, and then he would break off into song with a piano accompaniment. Um, and I'm just looking at this, thinking in this setting, in the middle of nowhere, on this beautiful island, I'm listening to this absolutely wonderful music. And I'm, I'm quite an emotional person anyway, Franz, as you may know. And I love opera. And there were a couple of times when I have to say I had tears because it was just such an, a moving moment. And uh, at times I, I looked down at my friends who are at the end of the table and they're both looking at me with their, with their jaws on the floor, looking at me as if to say, how did we get here? How is this happening? This is, this is unbelievable. So they had an amazing, amazing afternoon. Um, I think the party started at 2 and we left the party about eight o'clock in the evening um, and it was starting to break up then, but it was still daylight. We went back to the boat and had a cocktail and talked about what we just done and what we just experienced and how warm we, warmly we were welcomed, how we were part of that very special experience. And then we had a, we had a sauna booked for 11, for 11 p.m. So Mark, uh, Richard stayed back on the boat, but Mark and I went into the sauna and we sat there and talked about it. And we, actually, we were silent for half an hour and we didn't pass a word between us because we were just processing what we just experienced. And it was really, it was one of those things that you could never imagine happening to you if you weren't a sailor. Yeah. You know, I'm yeah. sure I'm sure you know those moments and you've had them. You have them occasionally, that's right. But you don't have them uh, in Salt Lake City or in Los Angeles <laughs> on the spur of the moment, do you? <laughs> no, you really don't. So that was the... That was the one, I mean, it, this summer was a trip full of fantastic memories, but that was the one that will stay with me till the day I die. It was absolutely fantastic. And, uh, you know, it, the he one of his teachers was there, was a barrel-chested gentleman in his 70s, and as the party was broken up, breaking up, he got up and he sang What a Wonderful World in English, and it was just, it was the perfect song at the perfect moment. And it was just, it just couldn't have been better. You, you couldn't have written a script for a more wonderful way to spend a day. So I'm very thankful for that experience. Now, this was your third crew you're talking about, right? This was my third crew, yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I picked up, um, I think I said that I picked up Richard in, um, in Turku, mm -hmm. but, I did, but I hadn't picked up Mark until we got to Maryham. Uh, Mary, he, his schedule didn't allow, he was at, uh, in, at Lourdes, the, the pilgrimage place in, in France. He's, he's an ardent Catholic. So he joined us in Maryham. We went back there, and from there we went to Rodham, which is where we went to the party. Okay, okay. So... So then after that, we crossed back across the Baltic um, and we had a, I think, about a 40 nautical mile trip to a place called Blido, which is B-L-I-D-O. That's in Sweden. Um, and that was a gorgeous sail. Um, I think we were still processing what had happened the night before, but we, we had winds, I think, of 12 or 14 right on the beam. Um, so, and the boat just performed absolutely beautifully. As you know, Arcturus is a very nice sailing boat. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think we, I think we averaged about six and a half knots, which is, again, is whole speed for me. 
in the journey back to Bledo. And I think we, we put the sails up 30 seconds after leaving the harbour and we put them down 30 seconds before we got back into Bledo oh. Harbour, which as a sailor is exactly what you want. I think. One of those great sailing days that are so few and far between, huh? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So if a Bledo I've been to before, and again, um, listeners can see that on the website as well. It's a small harbour, probably only has room for about 20 boats, and there is a very well-preserved, I guess you'd call, in the English, we call it a lugger, which is basically a boat that lugs cargo from one place to another. Uh, it's about a 40-foot wooden boat that is, uh, it has a little historical significance, which I cannot remember. But right next to that is the, um, the requisite um, uh, sauna. And just up the hill a little, there's a really good restaurant. So we went and had a nice meal at the restaurant. And then Mark and I went and had another sauna and talked about life, drank a couple of beers. And when we came out, it was absolutely hammering it down with rain. So we didn't even have to jump into the water to cool down. We just stood there in the rain in our skivvies. <laughs> and it was just it was just a perfect ending to a perfect day. Wow. Um, oh, yeah, it's... it was I, – I'm sorry, go ahead. So go ahead. No, I, I just – it's probably – a little dull for me to always say how wonderful it was. But, you know, <laughs> most days sailing, even when things don't go your way, are better than a day at home sitting in front of the TV or working in the garden or whatever. You know that. That's and I right. think probably most of our listeners know that. But I had some times this summer where day bled into day and day bled into day where every day was great. And then I had those two days in a row that were just spectacular. And it, it just... You can't get enough of it. It makes you just want to. I can't wait to go back next year. <laughs> now, um, now, Neil, there's there's not a lot of chartering that takes place in in Sweden and Finland, is there? Not really. There are companies that will charter, but it doesn't seem to me like there's a big demand for it. Most of the boats that, that are there are um, Finnish boats, Swedish boats, some Germans and some Poles, but it just seems like it's the backyard for these, for these, for local sailors. And they're, they're on their own boats or their own family boats. Because I'd looked at chartering just out of curiosity in case people ask me how they, and it, you're, it, it, I don't, there's not a sun boat base. There's not a moorings base. There's nothing like that. There are a couple of Swedish companies and a couple of Finnish companies, which will charter you a boat. But uh, it's expensive compared to what, what you're used to. And I think it's because there's simply no demand for it. Okay. Well, that's nice. I like it. Uh, I like being with fellow sailors that are true sailors that own their own boats and know the headaches of taking care of their own boats. You know? Right. Yeah. Right. Well, it, it, it was interesting when I was in Maryham. I saw a big, um, a, a luxurious uh, a Beneteau Oceanis, I think it was. No, it was a Hansa. I beg your pardon. But it, had, it, it was a... Uh, it was domiciled in Newport, Rhode Island. They had a big American flag flying there, and I off the off the stern, and I and I I sort of skulked around until the owners came back, and I started chatting to them. And it turned out that the the Newport, Rhode Island Yacht Club partnered with the Royal Swedish Yacht Club, and they brought a flotilla of boats over from Newport, Rhode Island last fall. Um, and then they left the boats there, and then, and then a group of people came to sail over the course of the summer. And I think these people are actually doing a grand tour that ended up taking them down south and all the way up to the west coast. Um, so it does seem like there is awareness among American sailors of what you can do over there, but it certainly hasn't reached the stage where there's a big enough market for a thriving uh, charter business. 
And I could say that's good. <laughs> yes, and I and I would concur with you. Um, yeah. So so from Bledo, we were pretty much getting to the end of of, of the summer. Um, uh, they the, the two crew members stayed with me as we we went back up to Nortalia, which is just to the north. It's that big inlet there on the on the east coast there, and Nortalia is spelt N O R. T A L L J E, and they um, spent a couple of days in Nortalia with me, and then they both got off the boat. Mark went back to Los Angeles, and Richard went back to Spain. And at that point, I um, I think I had a couple of lay days there, and I and I met up with some Swedish friends who have a house over there in Sweden. And but then on the Saturday following that. I just um, fired up the engine and took the inside passage back up to Grislaham, where I stayed the night. And then I, after Grislaham, I went back up to Oregon, which was where I decommissioned the boat again for the winter. And um, that is really pretty much the tale of my summer from, from one end to the other. So it was um, five weeks sailing, a little over five weeks, 633 nautical miles, Three different crews, five different people, and uh, an experience of a lifetime. To be blunt, it uh, it it sounds like a delightful summer. You've also got some more uh, audio that you prepared while you were on the boat this last summer. Tell us about it and what we can expect in the uh, the next few weeks. Yeah, so I, I made a point of interviewing all of the crew because one, it's nice to hear someone's voice other than mine. Um, and also, it's nice to hear a perspective from someone who perhaps isn't used to sailing up there. You know, sailors who have experience on the sailboat, but not experienced in that environment. So I recorded Kevin um, at the end of our first leg when we were in Estonia. And then I recorded Canute and Grace in Turku at the end of the second leg. And then I recorded Richard and um, Mark in Nortalia at the end of the third leg. And they've all got interesting, um, insightful insights and opinions to provide. And um, once I've got that that uh, audio organized and sorted out, I'll submit it to you and um, it will make, I think, a good, another interesting episode with a, with a little bit more color, color commentary, if you like. Thanks, Neil. I really appreciate it. That'll be, uh, that'll yep. be a lot of fun to listen to that. You're very welcome. All right. Neil, anything else we ought to touch on before we call it an interview? I think that's about it. I mean, the only things I can say is that what we said before is that, you know, life is short and there are great experiences going out out there if you just want to grab grab life by the, you know, by the you know where. And you really should do. Um, And what the other thing I have to say is that I will be at the Annapolis Boat Show this year. Uh, It's next month in, in October. Uh, Andy and Mia are having a happy hour on Friday. I think at the Hogshead, right across from where the where the uh, boat show is on the Friday, and then they have a seminar called "How I Think About Sailing" with I think someone from SV Delos and someone from SV Totem, and I'm going to be there too. So if there are any listeners out there who um, appreciate or maybe don't appreciate what I have to say, please let me know. You can contact me through my website, and um, I'd be I'd love to meet you for a drink or and talk sailing in Annapolis next month for anyone who's interested. I'm debating on going myself. Some of my listeners have asked me if I'm going, so I don't know. I'll let you know if I decide to go, Neil. Okay, sounds good. All right, thanks, Neil. No worries. See you soon. Okay, bye-bye. Bye.
I'm going to try to enlist your help in keeping this podcast going. I've been producing this podcast since January 23rd, 2012, and it's been a labor of love and <laughs> for the most part, a non-monetized labor of love. And I need some sponsors. So if you are interested in helping me keep this podcast going, I would like to encourage you to think about and perhaps recommend companies or people who you think might be sponsors of this podcast. And let me give you a little bit of information which would help bolster the argument that they should sponsor this podcast. This podcast has been in continuous production since January 23rd, 2012. It's the oldest continuously running sailing podcast out of the 500,000 plus podcasts available in the iTunes directory. So far, there's been more than 425,000 downloads of this podcast. This podcast reaches a worldwide audience, the top countries of the United States, and then Great Britain, and then following that, Australia. So primarily the English language countries. 56% of our listeners are 45 to 54 years old, and 43.3% of our listeners are 55 to 64 years old. So this is a mature affluent listener audience. 68.1% are men and 38.2% are women. This is a very strong community. I get quite a few emails from listeners and I try to engage with the listeners and get people on that they want me to interview. So if you write me a letter and you say, hey, you might want to talk to this person, I always try to reach out to the person you suggest and try to get them on for a podcast. So it's a, it's a fairly tight community. I consider my listeners my friends. So who should be interested in sponsoring this podcast? Well, this target market is a highly affluent boating community. And in 2016, the recreational boating market in the United States alone amounted to $36 billion dollars. So people or companies who should consider sponsoring this podcast would be yacht charter companies, water sports apparel companies, boat equipment manufacturers, boat safety equipment suppliers, sailmakers, boat accessories such as eyeglasses, hats, and so forth, boat builders, and travel agencies. And anybody that's trying to market to this very specific niche community. I have more information available at the website and I'm willing to talk and meet with anybody personally that's interested in being a sponsor for this podcast. Just write me, Franz1 at medsailor.com. And I would really appreciate your help in keeping this podcast going. The website is www.medsailor.com or simply medsailor.com. M-E-D-S-A-I-L-O-R.com. Thanks. Life is short. In the end, all that really matters is the memories you make. So make a few. Go sailing.